in the book and movie Chocolat. It's set in a, a French village and the church is contrasted with a coffee shop. I don't know if you've read the book. I haven't read the book, but I've certainly seen the film. And the church is portrayed as uh, a place full of miserable, judgmental, hypocritical people. They're kind of shadowy figures who sneak into the services when it's always raining, into a crumbling building that is described as being aggressively whitewashed. And there the priest in the dingy, dark, dank church performs his shadowy rituals. Across the way is a chocolate shop. This is the center of the town, and this is thriving with people. And it's magnificent in its vibrant colors of golds and reds and oranges. And the proprietor is this remarkable, uh, spiritual and sensual woman who just exudes the affirmation of life. People just love being around her. And in the chocolate shop, people are transformed. It's a place of joy. There they bring their troubles and together over chocolate, life enters into their lives. Transformation. It's a place full of grace. And the church is set up against the chocolate shop. And the book actually ends, uh, and the film ends with the priest actually leaving the church on Easter day and just stuffing his face with chocolates. It's sad, tragic. The author clearly didn't have a very good impression of church. And so the question I want us to think about, and we'll look at it a bit later in the talk, is church or chocolate? <laughs> church or chocolate? The brilliant essayist and journalist, Malcolm Muggeridge, some of you are old enough to remember his writings, he's an amazing man, and for decades he was a convinced Marxist, sort of champagne socialist. He, he lived a high life, but he also very much lived a low life. And he derided and scorned the church. In fact, in one, on one occasion, he described himself as a gargoyle on top of the church, looking down and spitting, as it were, and mocking all these people doing their absurd things going into the cathedral. And yet always, despite his success, despite his affluence, despite his um, uh, promiscu promiscuousness, and you know, he had everything that he wanted, it wasn't enough. And in his old age, in his 60s, he was drawn to the church. But before then, he actually wrote this, how difficult it is to convey the longing that one feels to belong to the church. Positive envy of those the bells call to worship. Those of you who were here early enough this morning will have heard the bells. They're a call to worship. They are actually a call to meet God and find that joy and that freedom and that wholeness and that purpose and that transformation that that French novel suggests is found in a chocolate shop. In his 60s, he came 
to faith. He realized that the life he'd been living didn't get him where he wanted to go. And that, that longing he saw would be fulfilled in church and he heard the gospel. He heard about Jesus. He responded to the love, life and death of Jesus. He gave himself to him and joined the church. And he describes that experience in this way. A sense of homecoming. Of picking up the threads of a lost life. Of responding to a bell that had long been ringing. And of taking a place at a table that had long been vacant. I loved the last song that we had uh, before I came up and spoke. They didn't know what I was going to say. They didn't know that quote. But it finished off by saying that we're welcome at the table. And maybe there's someone here this morning, someone joining with us online, and maybe you've never had anything to do with church, or maybe just church is a kind of musty memory, something that you abandoned years ago for a better life. And here you are, and you find yourself strangely drawn. Maybe you're online today listening to this, thinking, why am I watching a church service with a fat man with a cool shirt preaching? (laughs) It's because Jesus is welcoming you to his table. I want to consider the first time of only two times that Jesus mentions the actual word church and one of those is here in the passage that we had read. Let's look at it. In our reading, Jesus has intentionally taken his disciples in the north to Caesarea Philippi. And this is somewhat surprising because this is the pagan center, the pagan capital of all Israel. It's actually named after Caesar who declared himself to be a god. It was believed to be the place of the gods and indeed of the demons. The ancients believed that actually it was a portal where the demons came from hell down on this mountain the highest mountain in the land of Israel, permanently snow-capped, long associated with pagan worship. In the Victorian era, they discovered numerous uh, temples and and, uh, sites of worship on there. So Jesus takes his disciples to the pagan capital, the pagan center. And there he asks this question, verse 13 in our reading. He says, who do people say that I am? And they reply, well, some say John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some say the prophet that we've been waiting for. Some say this. He says, okay, and who do you say that I am? This is the most important question that's ever put to us. And on it hangs forever in our lives. Who do you say that Jesus is? And in verse 16, Peter answers, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This won't reveal to you by men, but by my father. And I say that you are Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. At the base of the highest mountain in Israel, we have the highest revelation that the world has ever known. That Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Rescuer. He's the Lord. 
And he says that on that recognition, that revelation, that profession, he will build his church. Now the church is often interested in its premises, its buildings, its bogs, its bells, its fabric, its stuff, and so on. But today I want to talk about four premises that we can find, four premises, raison d'etre, presuppositions of the church in this passage. Let's have a look. The first premise is this, that the church is the community of those who confess Jesus is Lord. Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are God's son. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You're Emmanuel. You're God with us. You're God for us. You've come to rescue us. You're the king that we've been waiting for who's going to set us free and put things right. That's who you are. All of that is tied up in the answer that Peter gives. And Jesus says, you're the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. This is the first reference in scripture to the church. And it's found on Jesus's lips. And it's found in response to a revelation and a declaration on Peter's lips. Peter sees who Jesus is. And Jesus says, on this, there, I can build my church. Now, we don't know what word Jesus actually used for church in the Aramaic or the Hebrew. We know that the Greek word that the apostle used here is ekklesia. Literally, it's two words that mean to be called out and to be called together. It's the people that God has called together. Our English word church comes from the old German word kirche. And that comes from a Greek word, kyriakon, that means of the Lord. It means the Lord's house. And the church is his house. And the church is his people. And the church is his body. The church is his bride. The church is the people that he's won for himself. The church are those that he loves and gave himself up for. And he says, I will build my church. It's his. It's not the PCCs, not the popes, not the deacons, not the staff, not the members, not the civic authorities. It's his church and he's intimately involved with it I will build my church and if you're in the church today it's because he has drawn you you've seen him and he's drawn you and he's building something in you and on you and through you he's building his church that's the first thing I wanted to say the church is the community of those who profess Jesus as Lord. The second premise is this. The church is the community of the blessed who profess Jesus. It's the community of the blessed. Jesus' first words to Peter are these. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you. The church is the blessed of God. 
You see, to see Jesus, to understand him, to declare him, to recognize him, to say yes to him, to align your life with him, to say you're the one and I'm going to follow you, you're the one and I'm giving my life to you, to, to say yes to the God who says yes to us in Jesus is to be blessed. Blessed are you. This is the premise and the presupposition of the church. We are the blessed ones. God has always wanted to bless us. God isn't out to get us. God is out to bless us. And he's working his ways and configuring all sorts to try and bring his blessing. What is the blessing of God? It's the favor of God. It's the goodness of God. It's all the wonderful things about God that he wants to put on our life. God wants to do us good. Blessed are you. And that blessing comes when we recognize him. You know, the very first words... And the very first act of God after creation are to bless. Do you know that? After he makes the world and he makes humankind, it says, and he blessed them. He put his goodness on them. The very last words of Jesus as he ascended into heaven are, and he blessed them and spoke blessing over them. In the very last chapter of the Bible, it talks twice about the church as the blessed Ones. We're blessed. God isn't out to get you, he's out to bless you. And that blessing comes through Jesus. He is the blessed one. This week I was in a shop, I was going down to visit my mum in hospital and I stopped off somewhere on the way. And at the end, I was talking to the shop assistant. She was, they live in Bristol. I'm from Bristol. She was, this was near Bristol. She said that she was a Bristolian. She was from Southmead. She called herself a meader, which only means something to those who are from Bristol. And uh, at the end, she said, well, bless you. I said, oh, thank you. But bless you. She sort of stopped and thought that was a bit heavy. I said, listen, I'm a priest. I'm a priest. She said, no, you're not. I said, no, I am. You're not. I said, I am. I said, it's my job to bless you. When a priest is ordained, he's ordained to bless. She's ordained to bless. And the church is a community of blessing. If you wouldn't get on, you're not. You never are. I loved her. Meet her. Listen, this is a blessing place. Why? Because God is a blessing God. And God wants to put his blessing on you. He wants to put his goodness. He wants to put his favor. He wants to put his love. He wants to put his affection. He wants to put purpose on your life. He wants to give you dignity. He wants to set you free. He is a blessing God. That's what church is about. Some of you will know that at informal dinners in Oxford colleges, they have the blessing, they have the grace. It's called, it begins, Benedictus Benedicat, let the blessed one bless. And in Latin, it can mean, let the one who's been blessed bless God, or let the blessed one God bless the food. It can be read both ways. Benedictus Benedicat, let the blessed one bless. The blessed one is the Lord, and he wants to bless us. And then we, the ones who've been blessed, are called to bless others. Let us be a community that's not, that 
can never be described as the church in Chocolat, but rather as a community of life and vibrancy and color and texture and joy and grace and transformation because Jesus is at the center and he's a blessing one who is blessing through us. That's the second premise. The third premise is this, that the church is the community of those whom Jesus repurposes. Jesus says, I tell you, you're Simon. You are Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. It's the first reference to church, but it's also the first reference to Simon being Peter. You're the rock. Peter has said, Jesus, you are. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, now you are. You see, when we see who Jesus is, he says who we are. When we see and declare and align ourselves with who he is, he is the making of us. He sees who we are. He sees what he made us to be from all eternity. And he calls that out of us. He's the making of us. Simon was a fisherman. And he was rubbish at it. We only see in the Gospels two occasions when Simon is fishing. And both times it says, we fished all night and caught nothing. He was rubbish. I mean, honestly, his business model was bad. He was in the wrong business. But when Jesus calls him, and when he sees Jesus, and when he says yes to Jesus, when he recognizes who Jesus is, when he gives himself to Jesus and aligns himself with him, then Jesus says, you are the rock. You're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus is the making of us. And this is part of the blessing that he wants to give us. He wants us to become who we are. He wants us to step into our destiny, into our vocation, into our ministry. He wants us to be all that we can be that he created us to be from all eternity. Simon, you're Peter. I was Simon the butcher. And when I became a Christian, nothing wrong with butchering, it's a noble profession and I was a good butcher. But when I became a Christian, Simon the butcher became Simon the preacher or at least someone who's trying to be. It's an amazing thing. He sees and he calls it out and he blesses. Some of you are in the wrong place. You've always felt, actually I've been fishing, I'm not very good at it. But God wants to bless you and call out of you what he's made you for. Jesus changes lives, that's what we see here. He changes lives, he changes destinies, he changes destinations. He, he brings about that vocation. I've seen people's lives completely turned around and go off in other trajectories, other directions, and just become complete and fulfilled and effective. Frogs turned into princes and prostitutes into princesses. I've seen these things. Terrorists who've become evangelists. When the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard became a Christian, he wrote, now with God's help, I will become myself. Now with God's help, I'll become myself. Jesus wants you to be you. 
And so often we're not ourselves. We're what others have made us, what society has molded us into being. We've taken things and done things that we thought we should do, but we've never felt complete or whole or fulfilled. Jesus says, Simon, you're Peter. And even today, I think the Lord Jesus wants to say that to some of you. And then fourthly, the fourth premise. I've only got four. The church is the community of Jesus that inexorably progresses. The church is the community that advances. Verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They'll try, but they'll fail. The context is key. At Caesarea Philippi, there was a giant cave. It's huge. I've stood in front of it. It's it's, it's wider than this platform, twice as wide, in fact. And in the first century, it was actually called the Gates of Hell. It was its name. And it was believed to be the gateway to the underworld. And they believed that Pan, who was the only Greek god who ever died, would come to life, be resurrected out of these gates of hell. And so every year they had festivities and parties and orgies in order to try and bring him back to life. And here at the gates of hell, Jesus stands and is declared to be the Son of God. And he says, I will build my church, the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. Death will not hold me back. Wouldn't hold him back, and it won't hold his church back. Jesus will build his church, and hell's best efforts won't win. They won't stand in the way. And from that one profession, with Simon, who, was, who became Peter, we've now got, what, two and a half billion people today who know that Jesus is Lord and have been rescued from the mouth of death, the gates of hell, and have entered into eternal life with Jesus. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you free on earth will be free in heaven. Some of you have watched or read Harry Potter, but listen, the keeper of the keys is Jesus. He's the keeper of the keys. And he's the one who opens life and death, blessing and cursing, and heaven and hell. And he's given those keys to the church. He's given us that authority, that dignity, that ministry to open heaven, to set people free, to bring the kingdom of heaven, to bring life through the gospel, to extend eternal life and forgiveness of sins and freedom and life forevermore with the Lord. I began by talking about the movie Chocolat. This dichotomy. I'm having a funny diabetic moment at the moment, in case you're wondering, I'm all right. But I'm going to eat chocolate in a minute. This diet, chocolate or church? Let me tell you about three families who founded the chocolate business in Britain. They were all devout Christians. They were all the church. They were the ones with the keys of the kingdom. And they shut hell and they opened heaven. 
and they bound up those who were broken and they set free the, the, the oppressed and the prisoner. There was the Fry family, Fry's, chocolate manufacturer, the first to invent the chocolate bar. Devout Christians in the 18th century who tenaciously opposed slavery. And then in the 19th century, the Fries pioneered prison reform and hospitals in Britain and Russia and France. What about the Cadbury family in the 19th century, the first to sell chocolates in boxes? They made 27 different types of chocolate drink, Bourneville and so on. Again, devout Christians who pioneered the shorter working week and unions to represent workers and parks for recreation and housing reforms and sports halls in the Victorian era. And then the Roundtree family. They began as chocolatiers making cocoa drink, but early in the 20th century, they made aero bars, 1935, I think, dairy box, Smarties, Rolos and Kit Kats, chocolatiers. But again, devout Christians who saw the Lord and were part of the church. And they founded what was called the Joseph Roundtree Social Services. Long before we heard of that word, 100 years ago, it was used by this Christian family of chocolate makers who brought about social reform. They built whole villages for the poor, halved infant mortality rate in, for their workers. They were best known for education and schools reform. Fries and Cadbury's and Roundtree's chocolate and church, philanthropists, altruists, evangelists, people who had seen Jesus, and because they'd seen Jesus, they, uh, in, they prospered because they followed him. And in their prospering, they used all that they'd been given for the good. Did you know that cocoa comes from South America? I'm sure you do, it's Oxford. And in Mexico, there's a very famous statue of Jesus holding a great big coffee bean. It's called El Señor del Cacao, the Lord of the chocolate, the Lord of the chocolate. It's never a choice. And when we see him, when we see Jesus and when we say yes to us, he blesses us. And in blessing us, in investing in us, he blesses the world. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to worship.